Well, as you know, all good uh, children's stories end with the familiar words that you're going to see up there on the screen. And they lived happily ever after. Whatever the adventure, whatever the mishaps along the way, it all comes together in the end, and they lived happily ever after. Well, the biblical equivalent of those words is found in Revelation chapter 22, where we left off yesterday. Have a look back at verse 3 to 5. This is, this is the happy ending for the Christian uh, that God leaves us with in his word. No longer will there be any curse, verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful conclusion that is, not just to the, to the book of Revelation but indeed to the story of the whole Bible. You see, this is where we were yesterday. For the Christian, the day will come when you walk up the aisle in heaven and you see your Saviour face to face, whether that's when you die to go to be with him, or if the Lord Jesus returns first and you meet him in the air and his name will be on your foreheads. His mark of ownership will be imprinted upon your lives and it is an eternal mark of ownership. You are his and he is yours. And in the new creation, we read there'll be no more night, no more evil, sickness, suffering, sorrow, grumbling, ingratitude, for the old order of things has passed away. And there we will not need the light of a lamp or the sun, for the glory of God will shine and it will penetrate every corner of God's new world. And there we will reign forever with him. For the Christian, that is the end to which all of history is heading. And today as we conclude our little series, as we walk through that open door into heaven, we're reminded that that day that is in view, the return of Jesus Christ, is just around the corner. Have a look down at verse 7, the words of Jesus that are repeated three times in this chapter. Look, he says, I am coming soon. Again in verse 12, behold, look. I am coming soon. He who testifies to these things, that is the Lord Jesus, he cannot lie. He says, yes, I am coming soon. It is another repeated theme that works its way through the book of Revelation. The seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl when it is poured out. All announce the return of Jesus Christ. But the clearest picture of his return is actually given to us in chapter 19, where we have this vision of the all-conquering king, a rider on a white horse, returning from heaven in victory to wrap up all of history. Turn back with me, if you would, to chapter 19. And I just want to read to you verse 11 through to 16. And again, get inside this vision. The Lord Jesus is the rider on the white horse, and he's coming back. And we'll see what he's coming back for. Verse 11... I saw heaven standing open. There it is. Heaven is open again. And John gets this vision of what will be. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. 
and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King Jesus is coming back soon. Fact. I guess the question we're all asking is, how soon is soon? (laughs) It's the question that the church has been asking for 2,000 years. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes his first letter back to the church in Thessalonica primarily to address that question. They were expecting Jesus to come back in their lifetime and he hadn't and they were confused and he still hasn't come back today and maybe you're confused. When Jesus says, I'm coming back soon, what then does he mean? Well, turn with me if you would to 2 Peter chapter 3 or follow on the screen. I think the words should be coming up here as well as we try and answer that question of uh, of what does soon mean when Jesus uses it here in the book of Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, we read this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Two thousand years for us, two millennia, is like two days in the eternal calendar of God. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. When he says he's coming back soon, he's not delaying on his promise for wrong reasons. He's delaying. He is holding back that day of judgment in sheer kindness and goodness. He's giving all people everywhere the opportunity to repent to acknowledge their sin and to fall at their feet of their Saviour and to say sorry before it's too late. Because in verse 10 we read that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is the return of Jesus. The day of the Lord is coming. And how is it coming? It's coming like a thief in the night when we least expect it. You see, normal life will just be happening. Everywhere you look, the routines of life go round and round. People will be walking their dogs 7.30 in the morning, clockwork. Children will be sat at the bus stop waiting for their bus, earphones on in their own little worlds. The London Underground will be packed with people that will spill out to their normal places of work. Normal life, your normal routines will be going on and on and Jesus will come back like that. Like a thief in the night. And when he does, verse 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Jesus is coming back and as we saw yesterday, when he does, he will clear out the old creation, burned up with fire and into its place he will bring a whole new created order. We do not know the exact date of the return of Jesus Christ and we're not meant to. That's why the Bible tells us it'll come like a thief in the night. You don't know when the thief is coming, right? 
We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but this we do know, nothing else needs to happen. Big things in God's eternal timeline of salvation, nothing else needs to happen. Jesus has died for sin. He's dealt fully with all my sin, past, present and future, done away with at the cross. He's risen to new life. He's conquered the final enemy of death. And he's ascended gloriously into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of his Father. And he's coming back. And we're just called to be ready for that day. To live every single day now on the edge of eternity like the Lord Jesus might be coming back later this afternoon. But you don't think it really, do you? I'll pack my bags, I'll go back, I'll go around to Lankies and watch the footy or whatever it is this evening. Jesus might come back before then. You might not make it home this afternoon. You might be in your car when the rider on his white horse descends in glory to bring all of history to a conclusion. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. And I think the last bit of Revelation chapter 22 is written to help us be ready for that day. You see, the story could have ended in verse 5, couldn't it? The happily ever after, and they will reign forever and ever. That would be an appropriate place, would it not, to end the book of Revelation in the Bible. But God in his wonderful wisdom does not end there because we've got the, the rest of chapter 22 before us, where we're actually brought back down from heaven to earth from this glorious vision of the new creation to the nitty-gritty of daily life. And God, in his kindness, gives us some final instructions to consider, instructions that will help us, that will really help us as we press on in Christ to that final day. And I think they can be summed up under two headings, two main instructions that the Lord Jesus leaves with us. Number one, in view of his return, in view of his coming, keep God's word. Have a look down at verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Do you remember where we began back in Revelation chapter 4? When God pulls back that curtain and gives us a glimpse of these previously unseen heavenly realities. Point being, this is God's revelation. This is God's revealing. This is God's word. And what is true of the book of Revelation is true of every single book of the Bible. Every word contained within Scripture is trustworthy and true. Remember the vision of Jesus returning, white horse from heaven in glory? He's given four names in that passage. And one of those names is faithful and true. You see, God's word is trustworthy and true because the source of that word, Jesus Christ himself, is faithful and true. God's word is reliable because our great God is reliable. And wonderfully, God has given us everything that we need in his word. It is perfect, it is sufficient, and it's complete. Have a look at verse 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from the words 
from the scroll of this prophecy. God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. Do not add to the word of God. Do not take away from the word of God. Do not be one of those people that take a red pen and start crossing out bits of God's word that you do not like, that do not sit comfortably with you for whatever reason. Maybe something about the character of God whose holy wrath will be poured out upon sinners. Some people do not like that. And what do they do? They take a red pen to the Word of God. They maybe don't do it physically in their Bibles, but they'll just skip over that bit. This bit of God I'm happy with. I like the loving character of God and His patience and His kindness, but the wrath of God revealed against sinners, no thanks. I'll build my own understanding of God. I'll have my view of God and I'll, I'll bring Scripture to bear on that rather than holding up the Word of God and saying God defines who He is. And it's the same with any moral and ethical issue we'll have. We live in a world which is moving further and further away from God's good design. Sexuality is in a mess everywhere you look. This is going to be the big conflict point for Christians. If we stand on the Word of God, we stand on God's good design, and it does not sit well with the culture in which we live. And as a Christian, in light of the return of Christ, you've got to ask yourself the question, on what will I stand? The prevailing culture which changes all around me, or the unchanging Word of God? Let's not be people that take a red pen to the Word of God and skip over bits that we don't like and just hold up the bits that we do like. Every word needs to be heard. All Scripture, right, is God-breathed. All of it, not bits of it. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to teach and uphold the full counsel of God. And because it's God's Word, there is great blessing in keeping it. Have a look at verse 7. Look, I'm coming soon, says Jesus. Blessed, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. We hear the same thing in chapter 1, verse 3, when this book is opened. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. Blessed is the person that reads the word of God, that takes the word of God to heart and keeps the word of God, lives it out, believes it, obeys it and trusts it. Keeping equals blessing. When I was eight years old, I was given a book called Kevin Keegan's Soccer Tactics, uh, a hero of the 1980s, uh, for Dave Nichols and others that go back that far. And um, basically the book was pretty basic, but it was um, ba freeze-frame photos of Kevin Keegan doing little tricks and skills and demos. Idea being that you read this book and you do what Kevin Keegan did and you become like Kevin Keegan, that's it. And of course you can read this book and for the first few pages you read through and it's quite exciting because you think about doing those skills or whatever it might be. But it's not long, is it, before Kevin Keegan's Soccer Tactics becomes a pretty boring read if all I do is sit in my room and read it. Tell me, when does Kevin Keegan's Soccer Tactics come alive to me? When's that book come alive? When you play. Sit in your room and read it. It's boring after a while, isn't it? 
go out onto the field of play. You strike a ball like Kevin Keegan, it does not deviate from its path. 30 yards, bang, there it goes. Little Cruyff turn, defender keeps going that way, you've gone that way. Something in your heart makes you smile because a change has taken place in your life. And it is the same with the Word of God. The Word of God is not meant to be read in isolation. We're not meant to be these theologians that sit away in our high towers and understand the Word of God, but do not keep it. The real joy, the real blessing comes when we keep the Word of God. It's what James says in his book, isn't it? Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't just listen to what God says. Do it. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law, this is James 1.25, that gives freedom. It doesn't restrict, it doesn't constrain, it gives freedom to the Christian. And the one who continues to do it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, will be blessed in what they do. And if you want to know what it looks like to keep the word of God, have a look down at verse 8 and verse 9. Back in Revelation 22, I, John... And the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that, John. John, what are you doing? Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Headline, worship God. That's what true obedience looks like. It looks like worshipping God. It looks like a life of full surrender. Worship God with your heart, soul, strength and mind. Not just sing to him on a Monday morning, but live for Jesus on a Monday morning. He wants all of your life, every single slice of the pie. Not just a few little bits of it. There is great blessing in keeping God's word. And lastly, in this section... There is great blessing in sharing God's word. Do you see that in verse 10? Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Why? Repeated refrain, because the time is near. Friends, don't seal up these words. Don't hide away your Bible and put it on a shelf somewhere gathering dust. Don't seal it up, but open it up. And open it up for others, for their good and for their souls as well as your good and your souls. Husbands, open it up with your wives, that is your responsibility. Parents, open it up with your children, that is your God-given responsibility. Home group leaders, open it up with your home groups, that is your God-given responsibility. Elders, open it up with your church, that is your God-given responsibility Christians, open it up with the world because that is your God-given responsibility. So let me ask you a question which will drive this point home. Monday morning, think of a typical Monday morning for you. Can I ask you what the first thing is that you open up in the morning? Your emails maybe? To get ahead of the curve and work out what's going on at work? Your diary to make sure your week is ordered? Your Facebook page, see how many likes you've received overnight, whether that's what you do or not. The BBC Sport app to see what transfer dealings have been taking place. BBC News to see what's going on around the world or the Word of God. 
What is the first thing that you open up in the morning? Can I suggest if it is not the Word of God, then you do one of two things. You either get up earlier to make sure it is the Word of God, or you realign your priorities. Because as a people of God, the Lord Jesus is coming back soon, and you need to start your day in the right place, which is listening to the God of heaven and living in light of what he has said. Firstly, Christ is coming back. We want to be a people who keep God's word because there is great blessing for doing so. And secondly, in light of the return of Jesus, don't just keep God's word, but please remember God's salvation. It's spoken of again, look in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The seven blessings pronounced in the book of Revelation, that shouldn't surprise you, everything comes in sevens, it's the number of completeness, and here is the seventh blessing that is pronounced in the book of Revelation as we begin to draw things to a close. And do you see it there? Blessed are those who wash their robes. It's not a new image, we've seen it already in chapter 7. Let me read to you verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, we cannot clean ourselves up. You cannot deal with your own sin. Even our most righteous deeds are filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. It is only through trusting in Jesus Christ. His blood, the blood of the Lamb, His life, His perfect life lived in your place. His perfect death in your place. A substitute for sin that you can be washed clean and be presented before God in those glorious white robes when he returns. Then if you remember the story of the prodigal son, I'm sure you do, but the son who wants his father's stuff, he wants his father's things, but he couldn't care less about his father, and so he takes his early inheritance and off he goes to a foreign land and he blows the whole lot. You remember, wild living, careless and reckless. Where does that sinful life take him? It takes him right to the pit of life. And he ends up there with the pigs, not just feeding them, but eating alongside them. And in that pit comes the moment of, of conviction in his heart as God brings him to his senses and this, this wayward son turns for home. He remembers the life he's left behind. He remembers a father who loved him and he heads for home reciting this please forgive me speech on the way. But as he arrives at the bottom of the garden, before he can even get through the gate, his father spotted him and he hitches up his gown and he races down the drive. Think you remember what the father says and does when he meets his son? Does he say, son, you're an absolute disgrace. Wash yourself up, clean yourself before you've got any right to come into my home? Is that what he says? What does he do? He embraces him in the filth and the dirt and the failure and the sin of his former life and he envelops him in his loving arms and he clicks his finger and the servant brings a robe of righteousness and places it on this wayward son and he is welcomed into God's eternal home forever. 
Point being, you do not need to wash yourselves before you come into God's presence. You cannot make yourself clean, in fact. You come to God as you are, with all your failings, with all your weakness, with all your sin. You come just as you are, and in His grace, He cleans you up in the blood of His own Son, and He makes you wonderfully presentable before Him. Blessed are those who wash their robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the result of being forgiven and washed clean? Well, it's there for all to see at the end of verse 14 that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Two images we saw yesterday, right? In the new creation, the tree of life there in the garden, richness, abundance, wealth with God forever and the heavenly city. Picture of peace and prosperity, a restored community, safe in God's presence forever. And we have access to both the garden and the city simply because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Have a look at how he describes himself in verse 16. These are Jesus' own words. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I'm the root the offspring of David, and the bright morning star. It's a lovely expression, isn't it? The bright morning star, the sun, the herald of the new day. Just as the sun rises every single morning and gives light and life and warmth to this world, so the Lord Jesus, the bright morning star, rises in the heart of the Christian and gives light and life and warmth to our weary souls as we wait for the new creation to come and our victorious King to return from heaven on his white horse. It's not surprising, is it, that the Spirit leads the church in prayer? Do you see that in verse 17? The Spirit and the Bride say, come. It is a picture of the Spirit of God in work and the people of God causing the people of God to cry out, yearning, longing in their hearts for Christ to come back. And it's a call that echoes around creation. And let the one who hears, you've heard today, let the one who hears say, come. It is your responsibility now to say, come, Lord Jesus, for the benefit of this world that needs to hear it. And as we beckon the Lord Jesus to come back and make all things new. You see, there are two prayers that the praying church should always pray. Firstly, we should be praying for the return of Jesus to come back. Come back, Lord Jesus, and make all things new. Come back, Lord Jesus, and rid this world of that beastly rule. Come back and, and get rid of the hypocrisy and the, and the pride and the stubbornness and the pain and, and the greed and the daily battles of sin that, that we fight against every day of our lives. Come back, Lord Jesus, and give me full and final rest from these things. Is that not the deep longing of your heart this morning, to be free from those things? To be free from the brokenness of this world once and for all? Because it certainly should be. And then the second prayer, in view of that day, we should be praying that others would come to Christ and find life in him before it's too late. That's the last bit of verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. 
It's one of your values as a church, isn't it? To be outward looking, and I don't know what the exact words are, but to be focused on the community around you in Bista. But I wonder, do you pray earnestly? Not just a little prayer now and again, but do you fall to your knees every day and cry out that they would come to know Christ? Your family, your immediate family, your extended family, your friendship groups, your next door neighbours that don't know the Lord Jesus your community, your nation, your world. Are we a praying church? Are we dependent on God? That's another value of yours. How is dependency expressed best? In prayer. When we throw our arms in the air and say, we cannot change the people around us. We cannot change their hearts. We cannot wash them clean, but Christ can. And so as a church, we go to our knees and we pray that he would do what only he could do, that they too would know the joy of drinking deeply from the free gift of the water of life, that they too would live happily ever after in God's new and perfect world. Is that not a longing of our hearts that we would see others in the new creation? Think about those people on your hearts. I go straight to my mum and dad, my sister and family, best friends that I've got that don't know Jesus. Do we not want them to be with us in the new creation? When we smiled yesterday thinking of what it'd be like, the heavenly city, the heavenly bride, the heavenly garden, is that not what we long for for our friends and our family? Well, we need to be a church that goes to our knees in great dependence on our God. You see, the Bible is a story of glory, sin, judgment, despair, rescue, hope, but for the Christian, it all comes together in the end, in the new creation, where we will live happily ever after with our wonderful Saviour. And so in light of that great reality, in light of the coming of Christ, in light of the consummation of all things, let me leave you with two questions that will come up on the screen. Number one, and I hope and I pray and I think that the answer to this question is yes, are you ready for the return of Jesus? Have you been washed clean of your sin? Have you trusted in the death of God's only Son? And secondly, if you said yes to that question, here's the question that you'll need to ponder yourself this morning. If so, are you now living your life in a way that will help others be ready? Because the daily routines of life will just be going round and round. And then Jesus will come like that, like a thief in the night. And every knee will bow before him on that day. Some will bow gladly and embrace him as their saviour. Others will be able to do nothing but bow the knee in the presence of the glory and the holy of God on that day. Every knee will bow. The only question is, will their knees bow gladly when the Lord Jesus returns from glory? He's coming soon. So let me pray for us and then we'll discuss. Father, thank you that... We can trust your word. Thank you that every word within your word is trustworthy and true. Please help us not just to read it and to think about it, but to keep it, that we might know the blessing of living according to it. And Father, help us to be a people that not a day goes by in our life when we don't stop for long enough to remember your great salvation, to remember a wonderful Saviour who came to lay down his life on the cross in our place, who shed his blood for us and will return from heaven 
on a white horse with his robe dipped in blood as a reminder that he is the one who has already conquered through his death at the cross. And so, Father, we pray that until that day arrives, we pray with the final words of the Bible in verse 21 that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with God's people. And we pray it for his name's sake. Amen.